Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Carl Linnaeus was probably not the first scientist to realize the inherent connectedness of life on this planet, but he articulated and codified it. In the 10th edition of his Systema Naturae, published in 1758, he established a system of naming and organizing life that endures to this day. We still call it Linnean taxonomy, although today's system is somewhat different from the five-rank hierarchy he proposed. The principle is the same, though. Life is organized into nested ranks, with each higher tier representing a larger group of related organisms to which the species at the bottom belong. But now, some researchers want that foundation of biology to change. This ranked taxonomy is a foundation of biology. Every student learns it. Domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Or you can remember it with funny phrases like, didn't know Popeye's chicken offered free gizzard strips, or dear King Philip came over for great spaghetti. But more and more researchers think it's time for taxonomy to move away from these ranks, or even abandon them altogether. Andreas Heinol is a comparative developmental biologist at the University of Bergen in Norway. It's all very arbitrary how these animals are subdivided to this point. And when the student has to learn it, it also suggests the student that there is something special about these groups. But what is it? Nobody really understands this. Hainel says the problem with the system is that the ranks don't mean anything specific or uniform across all groups of life. Even though species is arguably the most important rank across multiple fields of biology, there are dozens of species concepts in use. And biologists working with different groups of organisms can't seem to agree on just one. On the other end of the hierarchy, it wasn't long ago that domains simply didn't exist. Three domains we use today, archaea, bacteria, and eukarya, were only proposed in 1990. At that time, the top rank was kingdom. There were five of those. Now there are at least six, though some say there should be as many as 32. Similar ambiguities plague all of the taxonomic ranks in between, even those often considered to be major, distinct, and unambiguous, like phyla. Perhaps this could all be resolved if the scientific community simply agreed upon a definition for each rank, but there's no consensus for that. Kevin de Queiroz is a research zoologist with the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. They could be used in a more meaningful way, and people have even come up with proposals about how to do that, but those have never caught on for whatever reason. And I think a lot of it has to do with just traditions, like people are used to the ranks being associated in kind of the way they are, at least roughly. And so they don't mind little changes, but, you know, in order to standardize them across all of life, some of them would have to change radically. Changes may occur over time, but in the interim, it's all too easy to forget that the ranks aren't consistently or broadly meaningful. 
And when people lean on these ranks to form evolutionary hypotheses or examine biodiversity, their science can be fundamentally flawed. Ronald Jenner, a phylogeneticist at the Natural History Museum in London, doesn't think we need to get rid of taxonomic ranks. What we need to get rid of is the unwarranted connotations that higher level texts are comparable because they are. They are abstractions. They are information storage boxes. That's all they are. If you have a diverse group, it is very useful to know sorting, because we are not computers, sorting through the diversity to know are these two things of different orders, these are different classes, that immediately has meaning when you know the hierarchy. Because then if those boxes reflect our understanding of the tree, of the relationships, it helps you retrieve information. So we shouldn't have to do away with it. Linnaeus was on to something when he proposed his hierarchy of taxonomy, but he was too early to really grasp how life forms are related. Charles Darwin wouldn't publish On the Origin of Species for another hundred years, so it's not a surprise that the taxonomic principles Linnaeus established failed to capture the full reality of evolution. Here's zoologist Kevin De Queiroz again. The traditional rules could just as easily be applied to rocks. There's nothing inherent about a family that it has to be a living, a group of living things. It's just this arbitrary rank that we assign. And indeed, Linnaeus did try to apply it to rocks. He proposed that a kingdom of minerals should sit alongside the kingdoms of plants and animals. But many would argue that the rank of phylum, particularly for animals, isn't so arbitrary. Derek Briggs is a paleontologist at Yale University. You know, in terms of the taxonomic hierarchy, there's some sense in which the phylum and the species both have, you know, rigorous currency, whereas everything in between is a kind of construct that we put there. And it's very crude. I mean, the phylum, I guess, is a group where we can't figure out what its closest relatives are. But what we do know is phyla distinguish sets of organisms with fundamentally different body plans. The definitions of body plans can draw on details of anatomy and tissue organization. They can also refer to one or more stages in an organism's life cycle or development. Individual characteristics may belong to multiple phyla, but the full set of characteristics is supposed to define each phylum uniquely. For example, among other defining traits, the anemones and jellyfish that make up the phylum Cnidaria are radially symmetrical, have an opening that serves as both mouth and anus, and capture prey with specialized stinging cells. The roundworms of the phylum Platyhelminthes have three distinct tissue layers as embryos, are bilaterally symmetrical, and lack a body cavity. The insects, spiders, and crustaceans of the phylum Arthropoda have segmented exoskeletons and molt between developmental stages. This idea that distinctive body plans could serve as an organizational scheme for life is actually older than the term phylum. In 1817, French zoologist Georges Cuvier sorted animal life into four embranchments based on comparative anatomy. In that same vein, German scientist Karl Ernst von Baer identified four animal types based on embryology in 1828. The term phylum was coined by Ernst Haeckel in his Generella Morphologie der Organismen, published in 1866. 
Hegel specifically noted five phyla of animals, but he used the term the way modern scientists might use the terms clade or monophyletic group to refer to a set of organisms that all descend from a common ancestor. Over time, the number of animal phyla has expanded to about 35. Yet there has never been a solid definition for what makes a group a phylum as opposed to a subphylum, a class, or any other taxonomic rank. There have been many arguments about whether groups like vertebrates or nematodes are distinctive enough to be their own phyla, or whether phyla like arthropods, tardigrades, velvet worms, and annelids should be lumped in with others, as they were in Haeckel's day. Andreas Hainol says ultimately, the decision to name a particular clade a phylum is a human one. It is in principle that some researcher had the feeling that something is a phylum because it looks different than other animals, or they look a bit different. But this is completely anthropogenic, and it's a bias from a human perspective of what looks different, because we have many characters now which are invisible, for example, genomic characters, which we have to sequence first to detect the differences which are hidden behind the morphology. But perhaps a bigger problem with the boundaries between phyla is that they tell us little about the range and diversity within a phylum. Some, like the phylum Placozoa, have almost no morphological diversity. All placozoans look so much alike that researchers haven't yet decided whether there are only a handful of species or more than 100 of them. Other phyla contain creatures so divergent from their phylum's nominal body plan that they're almost impossible to recognize as members of that category. Alan Collins is the director of the National Systematics Lab at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He points to one example of an odd creature that doesn't fit its phylum. You get some really weird body plans that evolve late within other groups. I love weird, weird animals, right? Like, so there's a weird jelly that's more or less shaped like a worm, the tetrapladia. And mm. if that were a really old lineage, which it's not, we might classify it in its own order or whatever. But we don't because we know that it's just a weird narcomedusa. Basically, a bizarre hydrozoan beside the jellies, corals, and anemones of the phylum Cnidaria. Or take rhizocephalan barnacles. The adult females are internal parasites of crabs. They grow inside their hosts in a form that resembles a branching mass of roots. They look about as different from other arthropods as you could imagine. Nothing about the phylum label arthropoda suggests that it contains such a weird departure from the rest, or that maybe it shouldn't. Phylogeneticist Ronald Jenner says the irony is that no matter what strange new forms evolution may invent in eons to come, no new phyla can be created to house them. That is the straitjacket of the Linnaean system, right? Once you agree that arthropoda is a phylum, you cannot have a phylum in a phylum. The barnacles, even though they look very different, you know, these parasitic ones, you can't make them a phylum unless you take them out of that phylum. So this is the one rule. That means future organisms must fall under the same phylum as their ancestors. Anything that's in a genus will also be part of the same family. It's the boxes within boxes. You cannot have a phylum level box within which it's another phylum level box. That's prohibited. It's like, ah, 
that shows you the artificiality of it, right? Because that barnacle may be as different from the arthropod ancestor as any other thing, but you cannot make its own phylum. And that's where the classification system breaks down. This points to the paradox inherent in the phylum concept. In theory, phyla mark the morphological uniqueness of distinct body plans. But phyla can't really signify morphological uniqueness. The hierarchical system requires shoving all of life's divergent forms into ranks that treat them as equals, no matter how different they may really be. Jenner says the system is basically bookkeeping of diversity. Mother Nature can be straightjacketed. And if she makes a phylum-level difference, a hopeful monster that looks nothing like its brethren, then yes, we should be able to say this is literally a phylum-level difference. But you can, you know, it needs to be a neat hierarchy. In reality, phyla are defined by more than body plans. They're often considered to be distinctive groups of organisms that arose within a particular stretch during the early Cambrian period, which started more than 500 million years ago. The sudden burst of diversity during this time is often referred to as the Cambrian explosion. It's thought to have occurred because the lack of animal biodiversity up to that point was unique in the history of life. Some say that abrupt climatological or geological shifts were important too. But whatever the exact trigger, the way evolution altered species then was seemingly different from the way it alters them now. But more recent data counters this idea. The discovery of new fossils that sit on the stems of currently recognized phyla show that the so-called body plans actually arose stepwise over time. Their apparent morphological distance from one another could therefore be purely an artifact of fossilization or extinction without being representative of unique biological processes. Some biologists like paleogenomics researcher David A. Gold at the University of California, Davis, have proposed that what happened in the early Cambrian wasn't really an explosion. Rather, they say it was more like the ignition of a long fuse of biological innovation. Others argue that it was closer to a series of pulses of diversification. One thing is clear. The phyla didn't all pop into existence at the same time. Take cnidarians. They'd already split into the lineages we recognize as classes before echinoderms came onto the scene. A 2019 paper in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution pointed out there's more divergence between those cnidarian classes, which include jellyfish, corals, and the highly diverse hydrozoa, than there is between humans and sea urchins. Some biologists have argued that the definitions of phyla and other taxonomic ranks should be based more strictly on when these groups evolved. Of course, that would mean big changes to the currently recognized phyla, Either later evolving groups would have to be lumped together, or lower ranks in older clades like the Cnidaria would need to be elevated to the rank of phylum. Jenner says even if phyla were defined on the basis of evolutionary timing, deciding which point in the evolutionary process to use would still be arbitrary and anthropogenic. Classification resides in that bookkeeping bit of biology, and if you start mixing that in with trying to understand stuff that happened deep in time, it's like, oh, if you want to be consistent, everything that's not a sponge is a phylum, one phylum. And nobody would believe you. Nobody would say that's a good idea. 
Despite the varying degrees of morphological divergence and the range of divergence times among phyla, many evolutionary biologists remain convinced that there's something unique about them. This idea is pervasive in evolutionary developmental biology, with many groups trying to find an objective definition for phyla. In a 2016 Nature paper, one group of researchers claimed to have found the long-sought defining feature. They examined developmental transcriptomes from 10 animals belonging to what are generally considered to be different phyla. They concluded that unique signaling pathways in the middle of development can be used to objectively define phyla. But to comparative developmental biologist Andreas Hainel, searching for the unique characteristics that define Linnean ranks doesn't always work. Because sometimes you face really wrong evolutionary thinking, which is connected with this phylum. In most cases, it does not do any harm to use these categories. But in some cases, suddenly it emerges that it's showing wrong evolutionary thinking. Hainel and his colleagues not only found flaws in the statistical analyses used in that study, but also discovered a more fundamental error. The researchers had merged current patterns with the processes that led to them. Notable differences between individual species within phyla are to be expected because each lineage developed independently over hundreds of millions of years. But that tells us almost nothing about how the lineages originally split. And research zoologist Kevin De Queiroz says if we were to base ranks on some molecular metric like genetic distance, that would probably introduce even more problems. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work as well because there's lots of inequalities and rates of evolution, even at the genetic level. In the end, there doesn't seem to be objective, consistent criteria by which to define a phylum or any other rank. Here's comparative developmental biologist Andreas Hainel again. So far, all explanation what a phylum is have badly failed. And this is not a scientific entity which we can use or should continue to use when we communicate with each other. The ranked system isn't entirely subjective, of course, but Jenner says the hierarchical nature does provide some meaningful information, so long as you stay within a group. The reality of sister groups splitting and splitting again and divergence of the lineages in terms of whatever measure, cannot be made consistent with a strict hierarchy. It's not meaningful. A class of snails cannot be meaningfully compared with a class of fish. It's apples and oranges completely. So it's fine the way we have it. We use the Linnaean hierarchy as the information retrieval system for people who work in museums and for teaching students about the hierarchical structure of diverging lineages. But when you want to do a quantitative study on body plan evolution, you're not just going to say, I'm going to look at order level divergences, because then your examiner will ask, what are those? And you say, well, I don't know, because you can't, because you're comparing orders of many phyla, which are not comparable. They're completely different. It only makes sense within the context of that one branch on the tree. Claims like arthropods have the most species of any phylum don't really tell us anything about evolution if the ranks aren't objectively defined. When ecologists describe the variety of species in a given region by using families and orders as surrogates, 
This only conflates rank with diversity. And Andreas Hainel says it does more than that. The application of the Linnean classifications, such as phylum, class, and family, prevents us from discovering the true biodiversity of animals and other organisms. Taxonomic labels are still merely labels, names devoid of units, says Ronald Jenner. The labels without the units make no sense. So it's heartwarmingly attractive to keep thinking in terms of these hierarchy and these classes. Without extra information, it means nothing. It's old-fashioned and it has limited use. But I don't think that professional biologists fall into that trap anymore. I think we as educators, it's our role to tell the students it's still good that we have these things because they help you in retrieving information. That's what they are. Labels to retrieve information, they are themselves not information. Paleontologist Derek Briggs, like many scientists, acknowledges that the Linnean-ranked system has flaws and can lead to errors. But to do away with it, biologists would need a replacement. I think it will continue to have a place of sorts for some considerable time because it is the lingua franca of you know the biologist in the field. Every field guide in the world is written in terms of the Linnean taxonomy, and we rely on that so that, you know, whatever you call a red-throated whatever in East Africa, one in the Amazon jungle, you know, the two people will call it totally different things. But if the Latin name is understandable to both, then you can make sense of what goes on. Research zoologist Kevin De Queros says he's not as extreme as some who think we should just get rid of the Linnean-ranked system. But what I've been more involved in is trying to develop a system of how the names are regulated that is divorced from them. You can still use them, it just doesn't affect how the way the names get applied. Because the current systems that we have are very tied to those. Dequeros and his colleagues have proposed an alternative system called the Philo Code to avoid these problems. Currently, taxonomic names are associated with particular ranks in the Linnean hierarchy. Consider a large group of beetles that's been categorized as its own family. If further research shows that it should really be considered a branch of another family, then either the original beetle group must be demoted and renamed, or the second family needs to be promoted to a higher taxonomic designation, and all the beetles within it need to be regrouped into their own new families. The phylocode ties a name for a clade explicitly to a phylogenetic description of the evolutionary connections among the beetle species. That name would be more stable and meaningful because it could handle any new evolutionary connections that come to light. The attachment to the Linnean system seems to be largely driven by inertia. De Queros says people would have to adjust to a new system that throws out ranks and defines life by some objective measure. It'd be a big change, and they just so far haven't been willing to do that. So instead, they keep using them in ways that don't really have any meaning. National Systematics Lab Director Alan Collins also acknowledges a lack of urgency. Scientists can usually sidestep the problems with taxonomic rankings by separating discussions about how organisms evolved from arguments about how to name or classify them. When you're doing evolution, you're doing evolution. And when you're doing systematics and taxonomy, that's a different thing. And it has a lot to do with names and sorting and making a system that we can communicate with. And that system still works, you know, it's clunky because life is clunky. Then when you're doing evolution, you're looking at 
tips and nodes and clades and certain sister group relationships and stuff like that. So it's almost like we're able to compartmentalize it and just do those things differently. So it's not as big a problem as it was sort of imagined to be or sort of like stated to be. But De Quiroz is hopeful that times are changing. He and his colleagues first proposed a naming system based on phylogeny almost two decades ago. They've spent much of the time since then codifying those rules as the phylo code and getting researchers like Collins to apply them to the naming of clades for the animals they study. That body of work is finally being readied for publication. De Queiroz says it will likely be published within the next few years. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Christy Wilcox's full article, What's in a Name? Taxonomy Problems Vex Biologists, on our website, quantamagazine.org. You can also read more about science and the origins of life's complexity in the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press, available now wherever you buy books. Thank you.